0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad, how are you doing today? Good thanks Rowan, good to be with you again and on a good topic. Absolutely, yeah. I always enjoy when we get to do a positive topic on the podcast and we've chosen a very positive topic today and we've called today's episode the helpfulness of hope. So dad, I know we're already into February which is just crazy I think to already be at this part of the year but I suppose with our second podcast of the year in many ways still towards the start of the year and so we thought we'd do a, another positive topic for today's episode but do you want to just give us a bit of a brief rundown what we're going to be talking about today? Okay, well, part of it follows on the last podcast about goal-setting.
1: And part about goal-setting is to have a hopeful view of the future. And this actually ties in with some of the background of positive psychology. So many people know that positive psychology was pioneered by Martin Seligman. Well, Martin Seligman was a psychologist who initially studied helplessness in relation to depression. Then he went on to study optimism looking at the contrast from helplessness to optimism and then following that he developed positive psychology. So actually positive psychology is a field that's largely developed beyond a study of optimism and clearly an important part of optimism is hope. Therefore with us having a positive psychology podcast it's helpful
0: to have some focus on hope. And I'm looking forward to having a bit of a broad chat with you today about the relevance of hope in psychology and then also getting into some strategies about hope as well because I think particularly at the start of the year we've had so many challenges over the last year in many ways and I don't know about you dad but I noticed so many last year talking about the year 2020 and obviously with everything that went on there was almost this bit of a sense that if we get over 2020 things can somewhat return back to normal but of course that's not necessarily the case the plan ahead is a little bit more clear and we recognize there still may be some more challenges ahead but I think it's important to consider hope and consider our own levels of optimism particularly when for example in the media there can be so much pessimism there's so Many pessimistic messages around at the moment. So, I'm excited to talk to you about hope today and hopefully be able to reframe some of potentially the challenges that are facing us both as a collective and also individually for myself. Yes, look,
1: I think one of the things that it reminds me what you said is say, last year when we got through a first lockdown, for example, or even if we say at the end of the last year, having done pretty well with contained much of the coronavirus. Now, just say if people after that challenge, thought, oh, great, we're through it all now. We've come to the other side. We could say that's somewhat hopeful, but that would be unrealistically hopeful. So that shows that the helpfulness of hope, it's not just from being blind faith. It's not just a fingers crossed kind of hope or being a bit glib about it and underestimating the challenges that we might face. There's something about hope that it's worth being somewhat realistic in our hopes and maybe somewhat active in it. And we'll be exploring some of the sides of that in this podcast, like how might we go about our hopes? So we're not just, if you
0: like, fingers crossed, blind faith, but it's actually useful. Well, I found it really interesting to learn that the first question that you ask someone when they come and see a psychologist is, what do you hope to gain from seeing me? Because I suppose without necessarily knowing that that's the first question, you might think, you know, it might be, well, why have you come to see me? Or what are you struggling with? But why is it the first question that you ask someone, what do you hope to gain from coming to see me? Okay, and yes, this is the only
1: thing as a supervisor that I virtually insist that all our psychologists ask clients when they first come to our practice, the start of the first session, what do you hope to gain from seeing me? The thing is, it encourages the person to have hopes. Now, what does this do too? In asking a person to respond to that question... It leads a person to maybe pause and to think of the future in some ways. It helps to have a future orientation to bring about change. Like just say if we otherwise ask the person, what are the problems that have brought you here? Or tell me some of your problems, which that might be understandable if someone sees a mental health professional, but that's got a past orientation and it's focusing in a sense with what's negative or where people are stuck or struggling but if we ask people what their hopes are the person has to take an active orientation to thinking about the future how might the person prefer things to look how might the person ideally see themselves as managing with a certain situation in future or finding their way of living for example it gets people to start to envisage to have images about how things might be so It encourages a kind of optimism because it's this active, future-looking orientation and it also picks up what's meaningful to the person. They come up with what their hopes are. I'm not telling them what their hopes should be or guessing what their hopes might be. So that engages what we call internal motivation. If the person says, I want to find more direction or I want to get on with certain people better or I want to find more energy In my life, in different ways. These are like differences that might subtly shape the therapy, but it's engaging with, if you like, more inner goals or interests the person might have. And we know that when people have internal motivation, they're more likely to reach their goals. And a final thing I would say is it encourages collaboration. It's a collaborative relationship. It shows it's not like the therapist knows all the answers or is going to come up with the answers for the person. Together, you're working out what's most worthwhile most relevant
0: for that person while they're actively engaged in the therapy and I suppose the other thing that comes from that is that it helps someone to be able to recognize success as well in terms of if someone indicates for you what success would be which is many ways what that question is in terms of what do you hope to gain from seeing me well if someone gets to that point where they achieve that well then they know for example I've achieved exactly what I've come To see a psychologist for i've gained the outcome that i wanted to but for example if i imagine someone came in and they had a bit more of an ambiguous sense of what they wanted to get out of it in terms of i want to feel better or something a little bit along those lines i imagine it's a little bit harder to even recognize progress along the way because it can be a lot harder to track our progress in that sense if we don't have that more tangible indicator to measure it against Yes, that's very perceptive.
1: It's not enough in a sense for someone to just say they want to feel happier because what does that mean? So we could ask the person, well, what does happy look like? For example, in your work life or relationship life or your home life kind of thing. And that leads people to think more deeply about what's important to them. So that starts tapping into personal meaning which is also motivating to people. But I think it's, again, a very insightful thing that you say about we have more of an idea if people are getting from therapy what they hope. They can think down the track, have they got that? That's actually what we do later on in therapy. So most people that we see, we're also going to be assessing their level of anxiety and depression. They're the two main dimensions of emotional distress. So when people see a psychologist Often they're struggling with a level of anxiety and depression. So we measure that. So we could say, well, what therapy is on about is reducing anxiety and depression. But that's a little bit simplistic. Yes, that's often important, and that's the kind of thing that will be presented at conferences. We've worked with this group of people and look at how their anxiety and depression has come down. You know, there's the research, there's the evidence that our therapy is working. But the person might also have said, I want to find more direction, say, in my... It could be in my work or in my creative pursuits or something like that. So at the end of therapy, we don't only look at things like reduced distress and lesser symptoms and things like that. We go back and we say, hey, at the start of the therapy, you said that you wanted this. You wanted more direction with that or you wanted to feel more confident in this area or you wanted to have made a change in your life in that area. And we can say well, has that happened? And it's a much more colourful, direct, personalised kind of goal and it makes it more tangible, as you say, whether the person has achieved their goals. But the fact that they formulated such an image or such a goal in the first place, it gives them a more specific target. And one of the things I find is, well in supervision, for example, if a psychologist says, look, I'm not quite sure how this is going with this client, I'm not sure how our therapy is proceeding, I think maybe we're a bit stuck, then usually the first thing I ask the person is, well, just say from the client's point of view, what are the person's hopes? What does the person hope for now? And often people are stuck on that question. So the next thing is to become clearer on that question. And I suppose it follows from that that we gather people's hopes might change. They might evolve. They might shift. That's fine. But as the person's goals are maybe shifting or evolving or becoming even more specific even, then we're learning more about what's meaningful to the person, what they would look to work actively towards, what in their future they would like to see differently. But these are all kind of future-looking, active, hopeful kind of activity so it actually encourages an optimistic outlook it implies i can make a difference to how things end up in future more similar to what i want
0: Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about an optimistic outlook there because I think the terms hope and optimism can be a little bit conflated in many ways. They're so similar that it can be hard to tell the difference in some ways. But do you want to maybe expand a little bit on what the difference between hope and optimism is? Because it seems to me a little bit that... For example, with asking that question about what someone's hopes are, you plant a positive flag in the future in terms of say that's the point that we want to get to, but from hearing you explain that a little bit, it seems that optimism is the vehicle that helps someone get there in a positive way.
1: Yes. Now, it starts to get slightly technical understanding optimism, but it's very helpful to look at what it means because it, I think, tells us how it can improve our mental health services generally which I think tend to be a bit pessimistic like the field of psychiatry in particular but many of our traditional views of mental health and mental health treatments I think often have a subtle pessimism built into it so um, yeah it's worth looking into what it means but just I'll pick up on one other thing that you mentioned there that partly A psychologist might be encouraging a person, the therapist is encouraging them, as you say, maybe planting a flag in the future or to have hopes about the future. Yes, a person might have come in and they might not realise they have any hopes. They might feel hopeless. They might feel utterly helpless. Again, that's where Martin Seligman studied depression and talked about learned helplessness. Many people with depression start off feeling helpless. So they're not thinking in terms of hopes, But to ask people that question, what are your hopes in seeing me? And then if the person can articulate that, it's already making a little bit of a shift. So the person who might not have realised that they could have any hopes now starts to open their eyes to that being a possibility, that forward-looking, hopeful uh, outlook. But now we'll look at what optimism is and I'll actually describe it partly in terms of what pessimism is. I'm saying that often psychiatry... Is based on a pessimistic approach, and I'll use a traditional example of the explanation for depression. Especially when I started working in the early 80s, but for many years afterwards, and still sometimes today, you would hear people being told, Okay, you're depressed, you're clinically depressed, it's a genetically based problem, you've got genes that lead to depression, your depression is because of a biochemical imbalance and you will need medication, maybe for the rest of your life, to address this problem. It's got a genetic problem, it's a biochemical imbalance, and you need medication, often people were told for the rest of their lives. Now this is quintessentially pessimistic, and the reason is, depression is in a sense a negative outcome, it's an unwanted thing. Now this is an unwanted thing, and the explanation for it is permanent, oh it's got a genetic basis. Well, our genes are permanent. It's pervasive, meaning it's across time in a range of situations. If you've got a biochemical imbalance, presumably you have this potentially in summer or winter or in the lounge room or the backyard or the morning or the night. Like this biochemical imbalance from genes, it suggests it's everywhere. And thirdly, you need an external fix, which is medication. Now, by definition, if something bad happens... And if you think it's got a permanent, pervasive, external cause, you're not going to function or perform as well. Like just say if it was a football team and you say, well, the problems with this team losing is that they haven't got any good players, they're just not athletic enough and they need to be completely replaced and you need to replace the coach for this team to win. That would be a permanent, pervasive cause with an external fix get a different coach and replace all your players that's a pessimistic outlook if we had our coaches tell people that's the reason why they lost you'd kick out the coach unless they had a very convincing reason you'd think that sounds pretty pessimistic however with a bad outcome or an unwanted outcome if the person is an optimist they will think that the causes are specific temporary and we can do something about it, like there's something internal we can do about it. In other words, well, there's a bit of bad luck that they lost that time, their best players were out injured, you know, they're coming back in a couple of weeks and we can learn, we're a team that's prepared to learn from our losses so we will pick up from this, we'll play better next time and we can benefit from what we've learned. That would be an optimistic approach. Hey, we can do something about this. You was know, something quite specific that influenced it. It's not like we don't have any athletes on our team. There were certain circumstances that made it a disadvantage, but also we didn't follow our usual pattern so well. So in other words, it's partly about our explanatory style or how we explain these things to ourselves. Whereas with an optimist, if something goes well, you think it's got a permanent pervasive cause and you can do something about it. So if you achieve something, you say, well, it's because I'm very talented at that kind of activity and I always put in my best when I do it. And I can always you know, draw on the best of myself and if for some reason something goes wrong, I can learn from that and I can get right on top of it later on. Then you have these permanent pervasive reasons for doing well. I've got the talent and I always put in the effort. Whereas if you're a pessimist and something good happens, then you'll tend to think, oh, that was a fluke. We might have won our game or might have performed well then, but oh, people weren't very harsh judges So, they thought I performed that well, or our team might have won, but it was a fluke. We're just lucky that they didn't have their best players in this week. And, you know, like if we get a couple of wins for the season, we'll be doing well. So, it actually makes quite a difference, these explanations, but sometimes they're subtle. When you hear something again and again and again, like mental health problems are mainly from genetic causes and biochemical imbalances, and you need drugs for all sorts of things, there's this quintessentially pessimistic model. I think we're pointing the bone at people when they're down. This is not to say that there's never a value in people being on medication. At times I see people who are significantly depressed, they've had it for quite a while, especially if they're also not immediately responding to therapy, then I think it's really worthwhile. Often that people might have antidepressant medication, but it's our explanations will make a difference. And we need to encourage people the truth of how they can influence things to some extent themselves, even if they're finding it hard to muster the energy or the know-how of what direction to go in. So I think this is a very fundamental principle about our mental health services. And I think that Martin Seligman did a great service to the mental health field by introducing the notion of positive psychology and optimism and all the research that shows that optimistic outlooks Help people function better, perform better. Well, if that's the case, why don't we use optimistic language in our explanations
0: of mental health problems? I'm really interested in that idea of personal agency that you mentioned there because it seems to me that that's in many ways the main difference between optimism and pessimism in terms of the optimist when things go well, they think oh, I have personal agency over this. When things go poorly, They think, I have personal agency over changing things around and making them more positive sort of thing. But it's interesting that I think even in our language, going back to the idea of hope now, even the way that we use the term hope, it doesn't necessarily have that notion of activity embedded into it in terms of, you might say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or... I hope there's no traffic on the way to the airport in the morning. It's almost like we use the term hope interchangeably with desire as if there is no personal agency over it. But the thing that I'm picking up there is in order to get the most out of, for example, a hopeful goal, you do need that idea of personal agency and you do need to really consider what is my role in getting to this hopeful outcome. Exactly, and you're picking up
1: on such a core aspect of therapy, the notion of being active in looking to work toward our goals. And that's partly where our last podcast episode was on goal setting. It's encouraging that active approach. And looking at hopes as an active word, it's very different from the word want. I want a happy relationship. The word want also means a lack. You you have a, a want of food, It means a lack of food. So wanting has got that kind of notion, just simply a kind of passive wanting and wishing. A passive kind of hoping isn't going to cut it. And that's where in therapy language, we're encouraging people to view hopefulness and hopes as an active kind of process, which doesn't mean we expect the person to feel hope right at the start when they walk in their door, that's where we're kind of nudging things in the direction of having a little bit more hope but at first there might be a number of things that need to happen a support for the person guidance other kind of things to help the person get mobilized it's part of life to sometimes feel stuck it's part of life to sometimes feel i'm just not equipped to deal with this in which case what really helps is help seeking And we're a lot better at that these days of encouraging people to engage in help seeking without shame, without guilt. It's not silly or pathetic or whatever to seek help if you're really feeling stuck. But what makes a real difference if people seek help for mental health problems if we can still draw on the person's resources, their own internal motivation, their own images of how they would like things to be, even if it's difficult for the person to muster that up and identify it in themselves and that's why an early part of therapy is the way the therapist encourages the person to get a little bit more in touch with some of their own resourcefulness and hopes and images and ideas and you develop this collaborative relationship where the therapist is helping draw from the client more resourcefulness even though the person might have really
0: lost touch with that. So does that mean in that case, if it seems that such a significant part of seeing a psychologist is about identifying hopes and restoring someone's hopefulness, restoring someone's level of optimism, does that mean that if someone was to have a healthy sense of optimism, to have well identified hopes, does that mean they wouldn't have as much need to see a psychologist then in that case? Now that's a really interesting point because that was
1: part of the basis of positive psychology and I think it's a little bit simplistic that idea but it did start off with for example Seligman emphasising we should look at preventing psychological disorders. So a way of preventing psychological disorders includes to encourage optimism. Well I think it's true that the more optimistic people are they might be less likely to become depressed in a certain circumstance. So in a sense, there'd be some of that preventative aspect. But also, a lot of life is harsh. People have losses. People experience trauma. There can be major adjustments that people go through. So I think that many people who might be somewhat optimistic in outlook generally, there might be circumstances that temporarily bring them undone. And that's not their fault. And I think one of the subtle downsides of some of that notion of preventing psychological disorders is it might almost imply, well, if someone becomes depressed, is that a subtle failure on their part? And so that's one thing I'd be slightly wary with how people talk about, for example, positive education. You introduce it in schools and the idea, early on it was said it was to prevent depression. Well, wait a minute. That's maybe a bit of an overstatement, and I might be oversimplifying it a bit, what they were saying. But there was this notion of it would help prevent mental health problems. Well, life is so complex. The, the year we went through last year with COVID, I think it's fair enough to acknowledge that most people at some stage in their lives are going to feel somewhat overwhelmed about something. And I think it's fair enough to allow for that. But yes, having an optimistic outlook in life generally will help people be more resilient But to tell the truth, I think the main resilience that I see people develop is actually coming through hard times but then having a hopeful way that they explain to themselves how they've come through it. So I think it's a little bit glib to think that we can just prevent psychological problems because if someone's exposed to an enormous amount of trauma like they're tortured for years and things like that, many people are going to struggle with that. Mind you, the ones who will be uncommonly resilient – will likely be somewhat optimistic. So I think that uh, we'll be very optimistic, actually. So I think that, yes, it's really worthwhile encouraging people to be optimistic and learning more about optimism and all the rest of it, but not getting too black and white and looking at it as though, oh, that means that should prevent all kind of mental health problems. I think
0: our mental health and mental health problems are a little bit more complex than that. Well, it's interesting coming back to that idea, I think, of agency there that we spoke about before, because it seems to me that optimism and hope, it's not necessarily about just looking at everything in a fluffy context in terms of, oh, you know, it'll be okay, and, you know, how great's everything, even when things are potentially quite distressing. And... I think looking at that idea of personal agency, well, of course, if someone feels that they are helpless in a situation, they feel there's not anything that they're able to do, of course, they would benefit from having assistance from a psychologist at that stage. But I can also think of many situations where people may have personal agency and it's still incredibly distressing. It can still be incredibly beneficial to talk to someone about that. So I think it's interesting there to come back to that idea of personal agency and not necessarily just discount people who may still have a hopeful mindset still have an optimistic mindset it seems to me that hope and positivity and stuff certainly isn't that magical elixir which is just going to mean that we're impervious to uh any negative feeling in the future
1: yes and you're emphasizing that personal agency just as an example of this we know from research that if we look at how much people benefit from example using relaxation or mindfulness techniques what's going to make the difference How much comes down to the particular type of relaxation technique, for example, that you use? A key thing is how actively people use it. It's people's active orientation to applying, whether it be problem-solving strategies or whatever therapy kind of approach. But there again, sometimes to help the person be more active, sometimes the person needs to increase their hopefulness a little bit because when you're feeling hopeless and you can't see much of a future, it's very difficult to take an
0: active approach to things, take active steps or to feel that personal agency. And it's interesting there as well because something that we hear so often when people talking about making a change or introducing, a, whether it be a good habit into their life, uh, I know I'm guilty of this myself, Dad, but you might think, oh, you know, I'll start next week. Might be, I'll start the diet on the weekend sort of thing. But it seems to me from what you're saying there that there's an element of passivity that comes with that. There's an element of which if we always keep something in the future to that degree, if we always think, ah, I'll get there eventually, I'll start next week. It seems to me that rather than even maybe thinking about next week I'll start this, thinking what can I do now to put me on the path of starting that next week might be a bit of a a more beneficial way of going about it. That's a great example. Asking yourself the question, what
1: might I do now, is a key kind of thing. And now this ties in with something else too, which we talked about last week, our values. If you look at goal setting and achieving goals, it makes a big difference if you're aware of what your values are. So the value might be, if I were to act competently in this situation, what I might do now? If I were to act helpfully in this situation, what might I do now? If I were to act supportively in this situation, what might I do now? So you can take the general context, the, the direction that you want to go in, And given that I want to do such and such, or if I want to, if you like, bolster my creativity in this area, what might I do now? But the question, what might I do now, once people are asking themselves that question, you're really getting somewhere. And often when people are asking that question, they've already made quite some improvements, say with their depression or anxiety or whatever, because that's a real frontal lobe kind of question. That's when your frontal lobes are switched on. But when people get to the stage that they're starting to ask themselves that question more, people are often often running. And whatever people do, even if it doesn't work out, you'll get feedback from that and then maybe come up with another idea of what to do. But that's a wonderful example of not just an active orientation, but a specific question that helps
0: engage that. What might I do now? Well, it might be interesting then to talk about how someone can increase their level of hope if they're not quite at that stage yet, if they're not quite at the stage yet of embracing hopefulness to that degree. We'll talk about some of the practical strategies later on that people can do maybe, but maybe just broadly, how could someone increase their hope if they're at a a stage of general hopelessness? Okay, now the first thing I would look at here is
1: hope relates in part to motivation. So we're talking about the, if you like, the field of motivational interviewing, an important component of many therapies. And so just say if someone comes in and they have an addiction, just say they have a severe alcohol addiction... Now if the therapist just says, oh well look with that there are lots of methods that we can use, we'll get you to start off monitoring things and then we'll get you to reduce your exposure to it by not having alcohol in the house, you'll just drive a different way home so you won't be driving past the bottle shop and we'll do all these things. Well you start off the therapy and well what happens? It doesn't get anywhere. The person's slipping up one way or another. The person might not be ready to take on those active steps of change. Now, this is where motivational interviewing comes in. It's recognising the person is not quite ready yet. They're not maybe convinced that they can make a difference or they need to make a difference. And there's two dimensions to motivation. And we've talked about this before in different podcasts, but one element is the importance of your goals. And the second thing is your confidence in reaching your goals. The importance of goals confidence in reaching them so one thing about the importance of your goals this gets back to what we talked about last week too with values it's what are your values how much do you value your health and fitness how much do you value a sense of freedom how much do you value your closeness in your relationships with other people how much do you value even if you like a degree of Self determination of influence over your life circumstances to a degree, but it's looking particularly at those deeper things that you value a sense of connection, health, fitness, freedom, competence these basic kind of things. And so, the more the person reflects on why they might like things to be different in that way, the more likely people are to be able to envisage some kind of hopeful scenario. But it's also confidence. And it makes a big difference if the person's actually had the experience of doing something where they think, what might I do now? Like I'm feeling depressed or whatever. Well, at least I'll go for a walk around the block rather than lying on the couch. At least I'll do that. Once the person takes some kind of step and does something, then there are other things to build on. But confidence partly comes from doing, but maybe a lot of the idea initially is
0: doing something small. And yeah, because it seems to me that there's a couple of aspects to confidence in that sense. There's, I can do that in terms of it's going to be possible. But then it's also, I can do that in terms of me individually. It's going to be possible for me. For example, you may have seen Edmund Hillary climb Everest. You know that it's possible to climb Everest, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be able to climb Everest in that sense. So I wonder if you could just break down even what confidence is in that sense for us. Okay well confidence basically means that
1: you feel that you have the wherewithal, you feel that you have some ways of making progress. So this partly relates to having methods as well or a way that will work. So to some extent I'm emphasising if people start somewhere anywhere and put some positive energy into it that will help and in the long run I think that tends to happen. But it does make a difference if people have some confidence in their ways, the resources they have to deal with it. And I would suggest that that's part of the reason why as a therapist you ask people, have you been in this situation before? Have you been depressed before? And the person might, yeah, yes, they have been. Well, how did you come through that? You know, like, um, I know that you had a period of time where you were actually functioning pretty well afterwards, so what helped you get through that first? experience that you had so you're looking for people to articulate what they've already done in the past that might still be relevant to this situation and actually what you're doing as a therapist from the start is you're looking for people's resources from the start you're listening out for what people manage with, it might include their family roles, it might include the way they've told a story about helping someone, it might include an interest they have, it might include their work. We learn a fair bit about people's resourcefulness that they might have lost touch with. And so we're looking to help remind the person of these resources, strategies, ways that they've dealt with in the past... Uh, It might have even been the way that they sought help in the past with a particular problem. It was actually a useful form of help-seeking that the person might not have thought to use at this stage as well. So we look broadly also at the means that people have to deal with that. But when people remember that they've previously managed with challenging problems, that really helps. Sometimes people need to develop some new skills or new ways And that's where sometimes certain kind of therapy techniques or therapy approaches or strategies and guidance and what we call psychoeducation, like all the tip sheets and articles on our practice website, they're partly looking to guide people as to strategies for dealing with anger or panic or relationship problems and things like that. It spells out the kind of things that other people have found helpful. So sometimes you need to develop new skills. Sometimes it's also tapping into what you already have available to you but ultimately, it's the personal experience of I can manage with this or I can take steps toward it and noticing that and owning that.
0: And the other thing there that it seems to me that a little bit like we spoke about last week in terms of you go a little way along to, towards achievement and that incentivizes further achievement, I imagine as well with hope If you're able to access hope in an area of your life that you didn't think it was there before then that could extend out to other dimensions of your life as well in terms of if you're thinking oh you know I'm hopeless in my work well that could affect your relationships and your social life and and how you perform in other dimensions of life but even if in another area of your life you're able to regain some of that hope then I imagine there can be a bit of a snowball effect in that sense too so that's where it really is just good to get the ball rolling it really start that active approach that we were talking about yes and as a
1: practical example that you mentioned i remember a personal experience when i was depressed and lost some hope when i was a young adult and i remember my father asking me will you help me fix this tap in the bathroom i thought i don't know how to fix taps and It was kind of awkward because I felt this was a bit contrived. I knew he was trying to set up a situation where I could help do something that I, I hadn't even done before and feel even slightly effective in a certain way. So anyway, we looked at this tap and he had a little bit of, you know, he had some tools with him and things like that. And it actually wasn't a very complicated job, it was just replacing a washer. You didn't actually need two people probably to replace a washer. But anyway, alongside me did this, and I thought, oh, this is all a bit contrived or whatever. But by the end of it, we'd put in a new washer. The tap wasn't dripping anymore. The tap was fixed. Now, even though I knew it was a bit contrived, I thought, oh, wait a minute. There was a little bit of a sense of agency. I thought, well, look, I could do that again. It made a difference. Like having the experience of anything that you do that could make a difference. And it might be someone attempts to cook a new meal it might be a really basic pasta dish something you read about in the newspaper but if you do something that you haven't done before even if it seems fairly simple that can increase your sense of what we call self-efficacy so your confidence so if you do something in any area that you feel partly effective yes that can help in other areas and this is relevant to depression because when we're depressed We tend to have negative thoughts about ourselves, about things that happen and the future. We tend to underestimate what we're capable of because of that negative filter. So especially when depressed or maybe when we're anxious and we think it would be too threatening if we tried something and it didn't work. It would be overwhelming or whatever. Now if we end up doing something half effectively then we think, well, that kind of worked, that can build up further confidence. So a whole lot of acting on hopes in a therapy kind of situation is doing some things and noticing that they make a difference in a positive direction. And then the more time goes on, the more you look to shape it to the ultimate directions that you're wanting to go in, the closeness in your relationships, the achievement at work or on different kind of roles that you have. And then you're kind of approximating the kind of goals that you're after. You're getting closer to them and hopefully getting encouragement on the way and hopefully learning not to be too hard on yourself when you slip up, that kind of learn to fail rather than fail to learn, so to speak.
0: Well, it's interesting starting to talk about some of those practical things that you can do there. And it was interesting hearing you talking about that story there. Uh, I had a friend uh, who once told me that whenever he got depressed or whenever he was feeling a bit down, he'd do yard work. And the thing they really liked about that is if, for example, you're mowing the lawn or you're sweeping the path, you can see exactly what you've done. So even if, you know, you might only get three or four metres if you're mowing done, but at the same time you can look back and look at the difference in the cut of the grass and think, you know, well, look at how much I've done in this sort of situation. But I wonder if you've got any other practical tips for people to, for example, just increase their level of hope. And I'll just mention, I love that yard work example. It's so practical and being able to see
1: something that makes a difference. So if people have got any practical way of just um, spending five minutes cleaning up or wiping a tabletop or something like that, that's great when you can visibly see the effect of something you've done. But one of the main things I would say is if people are struggling with hope, I'd say start somewhere small, anywhere. And little successes can breed bigger successes. And I've used this example before of someone I saw, a very traumatised ex-policeman. Severe depression he'd had for years, severe PTSD. He was very socially isolated. Well, after a while he thought, this is just no good living like this. This is just dreadful kind of thing. But, and I was seeing him for therapy, and it was very difficult for him to get any momentum. But he had the thought in his mind, I'll just walk to the dam and back. Now, the dam might have been on his farming property maybe a couple of hundred metres away. But he'd walk to the dam, and he'd come back, and he'd think, at least I did that. Now, people have heard me use this term, at least I did that. Actually, he's the one I learnt it from. He's the one who emphasised that and it made such a difference. Because the next day, and he might have spent the previous day much of it lying on the couch and feeling helpless and hopeless and all the rest of it, but the next day he would tend to go for a walk to the dam and come back and at least I did that. And you could see that there was a little glimmer of a sense of agency or purpose or being able to be active in some way. And then, lo and behold, it goes a little tad further. It goes a little tad further. Later on, that fellow was in a a group that we ran for people who'd been through long-term trauma-type situations and they'd been off work for often years as a result of that. So these people were often quite helpless in their outlook. This ex-policeman was one of the most constructive people in that group of encouraging people to take steps, not just get caught up in, dare I say, a negative looking back And feeling a victim from something, he encouraged people by his example, his ongoing example, to do little things, steps forward and build on that. So I would say that is a key thing start somewhere, start anywhere, start small and build on that. And while you do that, if you've also got a way of drawing on social supports, especially if you're feeling stuck, other people can help have some of the positive hopefulness for you. And it's good to draw on people who are somewhat encouraging or people who recognise your efforts. Draw on the social supports. And many people I find these days do that. Often where people used to feel ashamed if they're depressed. Now these days people are more likely to let people know if they're struggling. And usually their friends and others are very encouraging and very supportive and encouraging even the little steps. But that's the thing. Particularly take little steps yourself and own it. Say it, at least I've done that. Acknowledge it. And then look to build on that in the direction that suits you towards a goal that you have yourself. And I think the effort itself in a positive direction is actually even more important than the method and the particular activity. I think it's the effort itself because the positive energy tends to breed more positive energy and people, once they start going, once they start progressing then I'm usually fairly confident that that is going to keep on going in different ways. It certainly usually does. Things might stop people in their tracks for a while, but even then they can look back, well, before I was making some progress, and people can be encouraged that they might get back to that, and they usually do.
0: That's really interesting and it's interesting for me not even necessarily just in a sense where someone may be feeling helpless and depressed but I remember one time hearing, I believe it was General William McRaven who's, a, who's high up in the American military and basically he was saying that the first thing he does every morning is make his bed. And that just gets the momentum for the day happening and really gets the ball rolling. And I think there's really something in that in terms of if we can even just use that little trick to get the ball rolling at the start of the day, we can get so much out of the day. One thing that I've found recently is if you have a day that's a little bit, say, less productive than you want it to be and maybe you didn't get as much work done for the day or something, one thing that can be really beneficial is waking up half an hour before you were going to wake up the next day and just clean for the first half hour of the day. And that way, for example, working from home, a lot of us have been working from home, A, you get to work in a cleaner workspace, so it's going to be more productive in in that sense. But also even if you say for example wake up a bit earlier you might be ahead of the game in terms of might be the, the time that you usually wake up you've already you know done your chores for the morning you're already ahead of, of where you'd be in your morning routine and maybe you have got a bit extra 10 minutes to sit down and have a cuppa before you get into the day in, in that sense too so i think we can use some of those strategies not just for when we're feeling helpless but also to boost our levels of hope, even if we're not necessarily feeling as much distress.
1: I think it's a very good example. And over many years, my favourite way of doing something like that is going for a jog in the morning. And at times it might be a different form of exercise. It might be fortunate enough to be playing early morning golf or something like that. But typically going for a jog a few days a week, these days it might only be about, say, 25 minutes. It might not be very fast. Actually, it's certainly not very fast. These days I might even stop and walk for a little bit of it. But if I've gone for a jog that day, whatever happens the rest of the day, there's this feeling of having done something worthwhile, apart from the benefits of noticing how it tends to help with your thinking and all the rest of it when you get in that exercise. But I think a lot of people who start with exercise early in the morning, it might be a morning walk, find a great benefit to that. I think that does encourage that sense of
0: constructive agency i wonder now if it would be helpful to look at what would cause someone to be less hopeful because it's one thing to look at what to do if we are in that situation but also wonder for people who may not be feeling as hopeless at the moment what could cause someone to lose hope okay look i think the basic thing is the flip side of the experience of not meeting goals
1: So what helps hope is meeting goals and owning it, recognising that, taking steps forward. So what gets in the way of it and leading people to feel stuck is not meeting goals. So what are the extra traps that might lead people to not meet goals? One is setting the goals too high or too rigidly. So if we really look at unrealistic goals or we think we should achieve this or we're being a bit grand, this is also the problem with perfectionism. If we set the goals too high or too rigidly, we're more likely to have the experience of not meeting our goals and it'll be demotivating. Even if we've put in a really good effort, we might have done our best, we might have tried hard, we might have spent three hours on a task or something like that, or two days or whatever. If our goals are inflexible and maybe too big, we're risking demotivating ourselves. So also if we get too hung up on achieving outcomes we talked about this in goal setting last time as well if we get too outcome oriented as opposed to looking to act with positive energy with some intention following through acting on our values so to speak so not getting too outcome oriented so we don't get too disappointed if that exact outcome we were looking for didn't turn out that way we can still make an effort or we might revise the outcomes that we're looking for certainly procrastination tends to be a problem that's a kind of avoidance of the discomfort of getting up and doing something in the first place so procrastination just drags it out and it can make the effort seems greater than what's actually needed and that could be discouraging and the other thing I would say is in contrast to drawing on social supports letting oneself become isolated letting oneself become isolated and stuck with the problem maybe rather than Drawing on supports and sharing it around. So, if we get too much caught up in our own wishes that might get a bit grand or a bit rigid or perfectionistic, that's when we're more likely to undo our good efforts or
0: not benefit from our positive efforts. And so, how can we tell then if someone has lost hope? Because It may be a little bit chicken or egg in terms of what comes first with a loss of hope and depression. But at the same time, it seems to me a little bit that if we're picking up that someone has lost hope a little bit, it may suggest to us that they're heading in a way that we may feel concerned over, over their levels of distress and whether or not they may be depressed soon in the future. Okay, well this is briefly looking at the
1: concern about whether someone might be struggling so much also that they might be feeling suicidal, a topic that we've talked about a number of times in different ways. And so part of it will be reflected in the negative language. Part of it is the person will be coming across as being pessimistic in the way they're looking at things and there'll be a negative kind of tone to it so we might feel discouraged when we're hearing the person talking about their circumstance, but particularly what we're looking for when we're looking at this being a more concerning problem is, has the person lost that future orientation? Is the person no longer talking about any future plans or events or things like that? Because that can be the equivalent of the person conveying that they don't see a future. So if someone has negative language... If they're not saying much related to the future and if our feeling after interacting with them is like a, a discouraged, concerned feeling, and if we feel a little bit bleak and empty inside ourselves after interacting with someone, that might be, again, more than a hint that that person might be feeling some hopelessness themselves. And, and when it is that situation, people talking negatively, they're not talking about the future much, there's this little bit of a bleak feeling that we have with them, then I think in those circumstances it's really worth encouraging help-seeking behaviour, maybe checking with the person. Look, I'm just wondering you know, how you're going at the moment because I, I noticed that you don't seem as bright as you usually are or it just seems that you're not as engaged in your usual activities in different ways, so I'm concerned for you. I'm just wondering, how hey, is is it okay with you if I ask you how are you going at the moment? and basically inviting the person through a variation of that question, are you okay? And what we're looking for is if the person has lost hope, if they can acknowledge that in some way, then we can encourage help-seeking behaviour for the person to see their GP. Or if we know that they've seen a therapist or we ask if they've seen someone in the past, maybe to go back and see that person, but encouraging some kind of help-seeking behaviour because the person might have lost a bit of that hope for themselves and then it helps for other people to carry some of the hope for them. And at first when they see a therapist, if they do that, then the therapist at first will be carrying some hope for them, including using some of the methods or, or, or the language and encouraging the person, looking for the resources the therapist is looking to
0: help the person
1: find hope as one of the first steps of therapy.
0: Well, again, it is interesting that hope is such a early part of therapy in that sense, which obviously suggests that it's such an important thing and it's something that seems essential to a positive outlook on life in many ways. And that's why I find it as well, it's interesting that hope is one of the character strengths I imagine there's potentially some people out there who've done their character strengths test who are listening to this and thinking, oh, geez, you guys are being pretty negative about hope. But I suppose we have had a bit more of a focus on maybe how someone would restore hope up to this point in the podcast. But I think now it'd be interesting to have a bit of a look at the positive side of hope. So, Dad, as we said, hope is one of the character strengths. I wonder what would be the characteristics of someone who is likely to have hope as a top strength?
1: Well there's some wonderful things that come up uh, with this and so these are some of the characteristics as well as some of the benefits that come from having hope as a top character strength and yes we would encourage people to do their character strengths exercise to fill out the character strength survey if they haven't done it already there'll be some instructions in the podcast page for this episode and one of the wonderful things about filling out your character strengths and learning about that following through with the, the survey, the questionnaire is that you learn all these good things about yourself. And if people have learned that, say, hope is one of their top five or six strengths, well, good luck to you because that's going to help the general level of well being in your life. And you probably do these things that are also benefits to you. You probably have a positive stance towards the future. You probably do tend to look to the future in a positive way, and you'll probably have different ways of expecting that good things will happen. The chances are that you have the sense that if you put in effort to things that it'll tend to turn out well in the long run, you'll probably do things that help you plan for the future because you'll actually have an active stance towards hope. You're not just crossing your fingers, you know it partly relates to your own activity, but also you probably a little bit more aware of certain values or directions or goals you like to have and tend to act on that. So hope is a character strength that both reflects these kind of characteristics, that kind of stance, but also helps it happen, that future-minded, active kind of stance where you get this sense that there's a real link between your actions and what tends to happen after that a sense of positive influence in your life and on the world
0: well i just find it absolutely incredible the degree to which some people are able to display hope at times when i would almost put my hand up and say look i would be absolutely hopeless in that situation but for example one that comes to mind there is victor frankl who, you know, he spent three years at Auschwitz. He was at three other concentration camps. He saw members of his family die and obviously had a, a horrendous time during the Holocaust. But then he came up with that quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is, you know, one of the most deeply kind of spiritual books in some ways of modern times. So I think we're in many ways drawn to hope as a character trait. So many of our books and movies and, and stories that we hear about are of those people who are able to hold out hope in situations when many of us would, would just feel that there's absolutely no outcome that's going to be positive from here. Yes, and that's
1: such an example, isn't it, Victor Frankl's, but that also reminds me at times on a smaller scale how much difference it can make. When there's real hardship, including last year with lockdowns and through COVID and all the rest of it, one of the things I noticed is more people making comments about little things that people did that made other people feel better. The little kindnesses, if, if you like, the ways that people look to help with a neighbour or uplift people's spirits by, for example, singing on a balcony in Italy or something like that. There are the things that people do, so that encourages, if you like, that belief in a positive human spirit. Anything that we do which is a positive action in the face of adversity, especially if it helps someone else, just a little kind act I think that's something that helps bring out the best, if you like, in human spirit. And I think that encourages hope in itself.
0: And I think we've even seen with things like, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, that's an attempt by the collective to restore hope to a few sort of thing in in terms of It felt that there was an inequality in our community in terms of the level of hope that people had for their future. And and I think that, that that's partly what the Black Lives Matter is all about in that sort of sense. But it also points out to me that the idea of giving and the idea of doing something for someone else, well, it has to be in a way that helps them to restore hope. They have to be able to restore hope on their own behalf in that sort of sense. Obviously, we can give someone a leg up and we can give someone a helping hand. But if they then rely on that helping hand, that's something that as we went back earlier talking about that permanence idea and the agency idea, if someone feels that they've only got to where they are purely because of that helping hand, then that's an inherently pessimistic thing. So I also found it so interesting looking at this topic during the week and, and helping it frame that idea of, well, how do we help people? Because if we're helping people in a way that doesn't restore their hope and their personal agency, well, actually, it's, in many ways, it's counterintuitive. It's not really helping them because it's not allowing them to restore that hope and have that optimistic outlook for the future.
1: Yes, I think that's a very good point. And again, you're highlighting how hope is an active thing. It's not just hoping if I hold out my hand, I'll be given something else. And like you said, that Black Lives Matter movement, it was very much about opportunity. People not wanting handouts, people wanting equal opportunity or more opportunity. And I think, again, you picked a really good example of that. Black Lives Matter, it reminds me, what is a key mantra in positive psychology? It comes from Chris Peterson, other people matter. Other people matter is a cornerstone of positive psychology. So when you think of black lives matter, just like you're saying, it's taking that fundamental principle but acknowledging people who might have maybe been less in a position to feel as hopeful as some other people in terms of opportunity or relative opportunity. So yes, I think that's a very astute way of looking at it. Basically, it's a way of looking encouraging hope. And overall, when you think about it, that saying, other people matter, is a pretty hopeful
0: saying. And it's interesting as well because, you know, Dad, you and I, neither of us are particularly religious, but I believe in Catholicism, hope, faith and charity are the sort of central theological virtues in Catholicism. And I think that's so interesting because even if you look at faith and charity, there's an element of hope within those two as well. Because if someone has faith, then it's a way of maintaining hope. And then a bit as we spoke about before there in terms of the idea of charity seems to be looking to restore hope to people as well. So it's interesting that with religions and and particularly with Catholicism, how often hope seems to come through as a, a central virtue.
1: Yes, and actually the way you've described that in terms of charity, and you mentioned it during the week, how charity could relate to hope, and I hadn't thought of that. But when you think about it, it really does give encouragement to people who otherwise would be hopeless. And that also led me to think, what a strange word, hopeless, to use as a slur. It's often used as a criticism or a slur to say to someone, oh, you're hopeless. But when you think of hope in terms of charity, the way you mentioned it, well, maybe if someone is hopeless, maybe if someone is struggling to that degree, then maybe, along the lines of other people matter, maybe it's worthwhile us looking to do something to help them have more hope. And so the way you described that in terms of charity, it made me think more about hope can be partly a relational thing. How important is it to people? If someone's lost hope, if others can help carry some of the hope for them. It's relevant to charity, but it's also relevant if people are feeling suicidal. It's also relevant if people are seeking therapy because they're feeling helpless. So maybe this is one of the things about hope. It can be relational. We can sometimes help people have hope, even if they've lost a sense of that themselves. And that would be an ultimate form of charity in some
0: ways. Well, Dad, just to finish, I I found a great Winston Churchill quote that I heard during the week, and I think it really encapsulates this subject well, talking about optimism and pessimism and hope, but the quote goes, A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. And so, as I said by Winston Churchill, that quote, and I think that, that ties it in nicely in terms of there's obviously going to be situations where, for one reason or another, it's harder to see hope. But the more that we're able to frame things as an opportunity, even if they are of great difficulty, uh, the more that we'll be able to hold on to hope, it, it seems, from, from maintaining an optimistic mindset. A great way of summing it up, Rowan. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about this today. Dad, as you mentioned earlier, we'll put all of the resources for today's podcast on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. And, Dad, if you'll let me be a little bit self-serving for just one moment... I just like to let everyone out there know about my new podcast, which I've started and, and released as well. And and Dad, you and I did an episode together for that one episode too. So I haven't gone completely behind your back, but uh, but individuate is the name of that podcast, and we'll put the link for that podcast up on the podcast page for today. You can get that one on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast too. But uh, thanks for that, Dad. I just thought I'd sneak that one in there, and and hopefully people will be able to join me on my other podcast too. Individuate so I look forward to listening <laughs> to that myself Ron. I do oh good oh dad and thanks again for chatting with me about all this today as I said it's been good to get a, a more positive topic out of the way early in the year because even though it's still early in the year I feel that in many ways the year's rushing us by and it's already February and it's never too late to start considering some of this stuff and just look to reconsider and recontextualize whether we've got things in the most positive frame so thanks again dad Good run and I think next time we're actually talking
1: about something which oh might have been a bit of a boogeyman for both of us in the past <laughs> perfectionism. Don't know what you're talking about.